welcome to the Digital Digest, your weekly podcast from Capacity Media on all things digital infrastructure. I'm your host, Editor Melanie Mingus, and joining me this week, we have Editor-at-Large Alan Burkett-Gray, Deputy Editor Natalie Bannerman, and Reporter Saf Malik. Over the course of this episode, we are going to cover the biggest stories of the week, but before that, a roundup of the headlines. The parties building the ACC1 subsea cable have been named. They are Indosat Aridu Hutchison and Inligo Networks, and the cable will provide up to 128 terabits per second once complete. Lumen has committed to spend a billion dollars on fibre to the home after revenues from its fibre operations increased 22% in its most recent financial results. While down south in Chile, fibre provider Mundo has a new owner and its digital bridge. While over in Pakistan, Tawako Awal Telecom has a new owner as well, and that one is Saudi Arabia's STC. Meanwhile, in the world of satellites, Greg Weiler, previously of O3B and OneWeb, is at it again with his new space startup, eSpace, which is planning a rather ambitious 100,000 satellite constellation. Meanwhile, Bay Communications has stepped out beyond its native market, with launch at SoftBank said it will be taking the IPO route for ARM after its NVIDIA merger was blocked. And that brings us nicely onto one of the biggest themes of the week, and that is market consolidation. Now, Natalie's written a great piece about Ofcom's changing position on this. But before we unpack the details, Natalie, tell us what the British regulator has been saying. So basically, it all started with Ofcom publishing its latest report that has basically indicated that the changes on its way for the UK mobile market, basically saying that they might be due for some further consolidation. The discussion paper entitled Ofcom's Future Approach to Mobile Markets, it's basically a a set of proposals uh, that the regulator is considering when assessing the way in which it's going to deal with the mobile market moving forward. The biggest standout from the report is Ofcom's initial view that it's clarifying its position on mobile consolidation. Now, it has stated that the debate on whether a particular merger will lessen competition depends on the effectiveness of competition that can be expected in the market after the merger, as opposed to just the number of competitors in the space. As a result, the regulator has said it will instead be informed by the specific circumstances of that particular merger, taking into account how markets are moving, essentially taking it on a case-by-case basis. Now, the news, as you can you know, imagine was met with really strong response from the market, but particularly through UK, which as we know in 2016 had its billion dollar merger with O2 blocked by the European Commission and the UK's Competition and Markets Authority. So on the release of the report, Robert Finnegan, who is CEO of 3UK, he said that despite the company's extensive networking offerings, that we could do so much more if the environment was better geared towards investment. He added that the UK does not have the quality of mobile infrastructure it deserves. Investment is spread too thinly across too many players, meaning that our networks are subpar by international standards. According to Finnegan, consolidation in the industry could change that. Moving from three to four mobile players in the UK would mean better, smarter investment in the networks, which would in turn improve the quality and scale of connectivity in Britain and would unleash more competition. For those who've also been following around the space, they will also know that uh, Vodafone's CEO, Nick Reid, has also hinted at further m activity in the UK. He recently told a UK newspaper that he's firmly supportive of consolidation on the right terms, adding that a merger between Vodafone and 3UK should be approved by regulators if it were to go ahead. Um, and as we know, Vodafone is also pursuing M&A deals across Europe, namely in Italy, Spain and Portugal. So there were a whole host of other uh, proposals in the actual report, but those were the biggest takeaways. And it looks like there's some changes ahead for the UK 
mobile market. Thanks, Natalie. Yeah, huge changes underway. And obviously, with these changes will come a change in dynamics and perhaps more changes in leadership and, you know, a lot of different things. But it's the competition element here that is really, really interesting because obviously it was the European Commission that first blocked CK Hutchison from merging with Telefonica, which then, you know, took quite a few years to um, be approved. And then once it was, Telefonica said that they were walking away. Now that generated some quite strong reaction from Hutchison and 3UK, but that reaction came out as a statement rather than actually being attributed to Mr Finnegan, who's the one who's been saying all this in recent days. So it's back in 2020 when the European Commission finally gave its blessing for the deal to go ahead. But that five-year delay is what kind of prompted CK Hutchison to really put the Commission under fire and say some pretty um, dicey things about the way competition is run in Europe. But you've mentioned Vodafone here, which is really interesting because they weren't actually part of the equation back then. And as we all know, there aren't that many players, particularly in the UK. So which way do we think this is going to go? Are we going to see Vodafone pursuing these deals that there have been so many rumours about? I mean, even in the last couple of days, we've also heard things from Orange, which have obviously been denied. But yeah, things are things are going to change quite drastically, I think. I mean, if Nick Reed's warning is anything, it sounds like there might be something on the table between 3 and Vodafone. Because obviously the deal between 3 and O2 is no longer going ahead because obviously O2 has now merged with, with Virgin Media. So we could very well see something popping up from 3 and, and Vodafone in the future. I think the kind of the foundation has been laid. I wouldn't be surprised. But it was interesting because when this story broke, I mean, we were speaking amongst ourselves and I, I remember thinking, well, there isn't that great number of mobile players in the UK in general. So why this kind of great need for consolidation? But I suppose the need for further investment seems to really be driving the, the desire to consolidate even further. But certainly there are markets across Europe, which probably I would argue is in need of, of greater consolidation than we do here in the UK. And it might uh, cause a, a ripple effect across various markets. We might see uh, more stuff happening in other regions too. Definitely. The interesting thing with Europe, though, I mean, obviously, a completely different place to the UK now. As you said, we have mentioned this before, but the market is so fragmented. Their investment in networks, you know, it's multiplied across all these different players, whereas the competition commissions only ever look at the consumer competition side of things. So, I mean, it's, it's the wider question here that the likes of Ofcom and the European Commission, when it's relevant, need to assess the industry in more of a wholesale and infrastructure way rather than just looking at the end users. Yeah, if you look at the market breakdown in the UK, I think EE, which is owned by BT, is well outside the reach of any sort of merger because they're the biggest operator. According to Statista, they've got 22% of the UK market and BT has got a separate 4% for its MVNO business. And there are lots of little other little MVNOs, but O2 is second, so it's 19%. But Virgin Media has got 6%, so that's what, 25% between them of Vodafone Phone and three are both the smallest with 15% and 10% respectively. And that would mean that if they merged, they would have 25% of the market. So they would be about the same sort of size as a consolidated BT and EE. So yeah, it would. it's something that happened in the US a few years ago when Sprint T-Mobile US merged. And it's created three big operators of similar standing. So AT&T and Verizon and T-Mobile US. They're all about a third of the market. And I think regulators seem to have decided that's probably the best way of doing doing it these days. They used to believe four were the right number. I suspect now they've realised that you don't get so much investment. You know, these operators have got to keep investing in a new generation every 10 years. And that's very expensive, very draining. Yeah, I think if you're three UK, you're kind of feeling quite hard done by that Ofcom is only now 
looking to consolidate the market even further because of course as Natalie said that that deal with O2 didn't go through in 2016 because they would have been a major major player and as O2 were number two they would have been even bigger than EE so it'd been interesting to see which way that one went but I think there's definitely conversations going on behind the scenes as to as to further consolidation in the market and I think it's only a matter of time until we're going to see more M&A in the market. And I think there's also Saf I mean a sort of what seems to be seems to be perhaps a lack of enthusiasm by C.K. Hutchison for the European market now with, you know, the deal in Italy, it's sort of possibly deal in the UK. Perhaps they decided they were a huge investor nearly 20 years ago. A three UK started on 333, the 3rd of March 2003. But because we're with a 3G system, which just shows how out of date we all are, you know, 20 years later, and they started in Austria and Sweden, in Italy and other places as well, Denmark. And I think they've just gradually decided that it wasn't such a great market as they thought. Very interesting company, though. They own a lot of spectrum. So you can see why they're so attractive um, to merge with. Moving on to the next story of the week, um, but staying in Europe, and it's back to the 5G airwaves issue, 5G tower design and the interference with altimeters. Saf, over to you. Norwegian regulator ENCOM has conducted tests to determine whether 5G could interfere with altimeters in helicopters. This, of course, comes after news last month from the US aviation industry, which warned of the catastrophic consequences of 5G network deployments using C-band spectrum. The Federal Aviation Administration warned that 5G networks in the US operating on the spectrum could interfere with aircraft altimeters. 5G mobile transmitter was placed in the middle of an airport runway and a 5G receiver at the end of the runway to ensure the helicopters were subjected to continuous 5G signal. NCOM tested three helicopter types and made sure that they flew in different patterns around the base station and were as close as 50 meters away in some cases. In practical cases though, a helicopter would normally be much further away from a 5G transmitter than in the tests. The regulator said observations and analysis show no operational impacts on the radar altitude meters in the helicopters that were part of the tests. While the majority of the frequency band used for 5G in the US is closer to altimeter frequencies in Norway and Europe, the regulator said it is important to investigate whether there may be challenges for European countries too. ENCOM though says it's continuing to work on the results. That is fascinating. So what's your take, Saf? It's an incredibly interesting story. Like we said on the podcast a few weeks ago, it gives kind of ammunition to 5G conspiracy theories, which have seemed to die down a bit more recently. But again, it's interesting to see how much influence the US can have on like Europe. We hadn't heard anything about this until it came up in the news uh, a couple of weeks ago. Um, and now Europe's own regulators are running tests on it. I mean, it's going to be interesting to see uh, to see where this one goes. But AT&T and Verizon recently turned on their C-band spectrum. And so far, we haven't seen any planes fall out of the sky yet. So that's good news. That is very good news indeed. Well, the FAA over in the US has said that it's approved 20 altimeters that allow approximately 90% of the US commercial fleet to perform low visibility landings at most airports in the 5G deployment. So that's positive. I don't know. The more this story develops, the more you kind of side with that one person who told us a few weeks ago, and I don't remember his name, I do apologize, that this could all just be a bit of a ploy by the FAA to get the mobile industry to pay for new altimeters, which is a long shot and it's a very bizarre theory and it is just a theory but the more this story develops the more sense that starts to make i mean it's interesting that norway's looking into this problem now when 
if I remember correctly, the reason that it was affecting the US aviation industry versus like parts of Europe was partly to do with the way in which their towers were designed and all those kind of things. So do we know whether or not Norway's towers have a similar design that could potentially cause similar interference or is it literally just precautionary? I think there's something about it that's not quite sitting right because I mean, everybody's doing this test, but there seems to be no conclusive results either way as to whether or not this is a global problem or whether or not it isn't. Because for example, as we know in France, 5G has been like fully deployed around various airports with, without this issue altogether. So there's, yeah, there's definitely something about this that's not quite clear cut. I'm still a little bit on the fence as to whether or not it's people being overly cautious or if there really is some issue there on, on a wider global scale that we should be paying attention to. I wonder how much it is also rivalry between different federal agencies in the US of uh, who's got the most power and the most influence. Well, we will continue to keep an eye on it. I'm sure there's much more to come on this. And there's many aviation authorities all around the world. So, you know, there's many more players to weigh on this one. But thanks, Seth. That was a really cool story. And on to our third story of the week now. And we are going back to the world of quantum computing and quantum security, which we haven't actually visited for a few weeks. But Alan, you have news on a company called Quantum Motion. So tell us, I mean, this is a fascinating story in itself, but the way it relates back to telecoms and data centers is even more interesting. So over to you. Yes, um, I've been on, as you say, a quantum adventure, but it's not very far. Uh, just one stop up on the Piccadilly line on the London Underground from King's Cross St Pancras, which of course is where the Eurostar is coming from, if you're coming from the continent. And there's an office just off the Caledonian Road, which I'm a South Londoner, but North Londoners will know it well, where there is this company called Quantum Motion. And inside they've got a really fascinating lab that includes integrated circuit engineers, software engineers, quantum physicists and quantum computing architects. And their key thing that they say is different from other quantum companies in the business, and we've had quite a lot of those over the last year or two, is that they're working with silicon. And, you know, silicon is what's in your laptop in front of you, what's in your mobile phone, what's in your everything, every bit of electronics in the world just about has a silicon in it. It's the big engine of the semiconductor revolution over the last 30 or 40 years. And quantum motion has developed a technique of using silicon and therefore the big silicon factories that exist around the world to make chips to make quantum circuits. The fascinating thing about it is that it's got to be done at really low temperature. There's a nice machine that they showed me in their lab, which is about a meter and a half high, made out of very pure copper. And then there's two sort of vacuum flasks, a collection of vacuum flasks hanging off the bottom. And when it's in a big can, a big sort of giant thermos flask that you keep your coffee in or your ice cream in, it's very cold. It's as one of the people there said, here at the top, you've got the temperature of Neptune. Down at the middle, you've got the temperature of outer space. I mean, way beyond the solar system. And down at the bottom, the temperature is a few micro Kelvin. Now, zero Kelvin is absolute zero, which is minus 273.15 degrees Celsius. They're very cold. So a micro Kelvin is just a fraction of a degree above absolute zero. Very cold. You wouldn't want to be there. They've got liquid hydrogen. They've got liquid helium. They've got all sorts of stuff pumping around their machinery. And they're actually working on quantum computing devices. Now, who's their backers? Because this is really key. It's not only two universities. That's Oxford University and University College London, both with a good reputation with in quantum physics, but also investment from the National Security Strategic Investment Fund, which is a UK government agent 
agency backed by MI6 and GCHQ and probably other intelligence agencies as well. So the spooks are in there. The spooks know why they're interested in quantum computing, because firstly, it'll make it possible to encrypt data to a hugely more secure standard than we've got at the moment. And secondly, data that's been encrypted to current standards over the last five or 10 years, it's all being stored away by various nefarious people and various legitimate people as well, no doubt, so that when quantum computing arrives, they'll be able to decode it and find out who's been paying what to whom and what companies' secrets are, what individual secrets are. At the moment, you know, everybody's laptop, everybody's phone is encrypted to a very high standard that makes it very difficult for the intelligence agencies to work out what's going on. We're about in a few years' time to get over that when with quantum computing, it'll be decodable. So it's all being stored away. So all those crooks who've been doing things that they shouldn't have been doing, thinking they're secure, will no longer be secure, which is quite an interesting concept. And of course, with quantum computing, you'll be able to encrypt new stuff to a much higher degree, which might mean it takes thousands of years to decode. So it's going to be a big change. At the moment, the idea is that quantum computing is going to be very expensive. There are lots of people around the world that are looking at different techniques to make it easy or not easy, but feasible is the word I think I'm looking for. It's very high physics, very high level of physics, very complicated. And there's not that many people around in the world that understand it. But they've got, you know, a bunch of people in their company, including the COO and the CTO with PhDs in quantum physics, and they're busy building. They're relying on the fact that half a billion dollars over the last few years has been put into the silicon industry to make silicon chips. And if they think they can, they are ideas that they can make quantum devices in standard silicon foundries, most of which are in Asia, a couple in Taiwan, one in China, one in South Korea, and one US-owned one as well. It's a market that has been lost to Europe and to a large extent to North America as well, though this may change, I guess. But they've got just standard 19-inch racks feeding into this quantum device in this giant thermos flask. And the idea is that they'll be doing lots of quantum development over the next few years. The term you're going to have to learn is qubit, spelled Q-U-B-I-T, which is the quantum computing equivalent of a bit. And the moment people are developing ones that are about 50 to 100 qubits, which you can do a bit with, you can do proof concepts with. But these guys from Quantum Motion say that they're going to be able to build millions of qubits in these cylinders, which are, yeah, about the sort of the size of a thermos flask that you would take on a walking holiday. Quite impressive. Very impressive. And it's just sitting there just off a main road in London with buses going past. It shows that maybe we're on the tipping point where this will be a really feasible technology, which you know we can expect to see in data centers around the world without any huge, in, well, a lot of investment without any huge change of the infrastructure to facilitate it. But uh, it was impressive. First time I'd been into some Something out of the office or out of my home office for two years. And it was a really good way of starting being back on the road and talking to people in their own premises. Thanks, Alan. Well, great to hear that it was such a fantastic and fascinating visit. And also that this place is just hiding in plain sight in central London. I guess it's, yeah, hiding in plain sight is hiding. It's pretty ingenious. <laughs> it's tucked away behind a Methodist church in, you know, off central London or one stop out of uh, King's Cross. And the idea is it should be really accessible. So they want it 
potential customers to be able to come into London, just get on, on the tube and get there really easily. And you can come into Heathrow and get the Piccadilly line right to the doorstep just about, or you can come into Gatwick or Luton Airport and get the Thameslink, which Natalie knows and loves, and then just one stop on the tube from King's Cross, St Pancras International. And you're there. I mean, it's just very accessible. Uh, you don't have to go to a trading estate in Slough. Sorry, Slough. We all love Slough on this podcast. So many data centers in Slough. I know, I know. <laughs> it's just hard to get to, that's all. <laughs> Would it be ironic, though, if the one thing that put a stop to this was not the limits on human intelligence, but actually the global chip supply chain and foundry capacity issues that have been really quite prominent for almost a year now? I think you're right. And I think the big problem is that of the top five silicon foundries in the world, one is Chinese, two are Taiwanese, you know, that's a situation of international tension. So would you invest your future of your quantum data center company in the technology that goes on there? I think it shows that we really need an investment in silicon foundries in other parts of the world, in Europe, in the Americas, and in in Africa and the Middle East. I mean, why should it be confined to this small corner of Asia? And perhaps the UK as well. I mean, we have one in Wales. This is obviously a post-Brexit drum roll, drum banging. I don't know. They're doing the post-Brexit thing, aren't they? It's very similar to the Ofcom story in that way. It's like, this is the UK's position. This is how we're going to run things moving forwards kind of story. Thanks for that one, Alan. Well, you're not the only one who's been on the move in the last week. As mentioned in last week's episode, Natalie was at Metro Connect only a few days ago, actually. That's how time flies. Natalie, now you attended Metro Connect, the first live edition of the event since 2019. So that in itself is a huge, huge kind of thing. But also you chaired a panel while you were there. So we've got lots to unpick here. First of all, tell us about who you spoke to, things that were discussed. The panel that I was chairing was actually the keynote. It's more like a fireside chat that was co-moderated between myself and Warren Roll, the uh, Managing Director of Digital Bridge. And we were um, speaking to Steve Smith, who is obviously the CEO of SEO. It was a really great conversation. We were talking about everything from, you know, the biggest trends in the space. Uh, Steve Smith, you know, entering the role, I believe it was about 15 months ago, he's been in the role and moving from the kind of like data center to communications infrastructure, because I'm sure everybody listening knows, but obviously Steve Smith was the former CEO of Equinix and also obviously acquisition by Digital Bridge and EQT. So a lot to talk about, but it was a really great conversation. We covered a little bit of everything and Steve being Steve was really open and really didn't pull any punches, to be honest. It was a great chat. Fantastic. Well, unfortunately, because it was a live event, um, it wasn't available to stream online, but that's okay because there's plenty of coverage across Capacity Media portfolio. So tell us more about the actual event itself, how well attended it was and who was there? Who did you rub shoulders with? <laughs> Interestingly, um, despite being passive for five years, it was actually my first time going to Metro Connect, which is always great. It was very much geared towards investors. And I think the feeling was it was the place where deals take place. So a lot of investors, a lot of C-suite executives, you know, obviously, aside from the, the people that I mentioned, I had the pleasure of speaking to the CEO of Great Plains Communications. I spoke to a couple of uh, people running SPACs. But there was everybody there from Lazard, which is the finance company, ING, and all the infrastructure players. Windstream was there. It was literally the who's who of North American infrastructure and investment. So yeah, it was quite literally walking past in the hallways and you kind of seeing 
faces of people that you kind of know of, but might not necessarily have uh, spoken to or been introduced to. But uh, it was a great event and it was very buzzy. Everybody was taking meetings in the hallways or in the lobby spaces. And, you know, Miami is a great place to be because you can also sit outside, although it was unseasonably cold. And there actually was a bit of a running joke that apparently it was so cold while we were there that the, uh, the local iguanas were actually falling out of trees. But it was very well attended and you had a great coverage across both the conference and in the meeting and networking spaces, which is not always the case. And if I remember correctly, the team on site also said it was their highest attendance, even pre-pandemic. So a really good sign that people really just want to get back to meeting face-to-face again. That's awesome. Really, really good to hear. And obviously there are plenty more opportunities to meet face-to-face. Um, you, Natalie and Saf will both be at Capacity Middle East taking place at the end of March. And so anybody who's listening who wishes to catch up with some members of the editorial team, do track them down on site in Dubai. And also Saf's off to MWC in a couple of weeks, which takes place live at the end of this month. So we're back into the swing of things. It's good to, it's good to close the door in the last two years, isn't it? Absolutely. And we should all be at International Telecoms Week just outside Washington, D.C. in May, which is uh, something to look forward to. Good plug. Yes, we will all be at that one. Quite a few days off, but only about 80 now, I think. Not that I'm counting. Well, thanks, everybody. That brings us to the end of this week's episode. Thanks to the team for bringing us all those stories. Thanks to everybody who listened. And a huge thanks to Richard Cosgrove for editing this episode. We will return in two weeks' time with more stories from the global tech and telecom space. But until then, we will not leave you without updates. Don't forget to catch up with all the latest on the industry over at capacitymedia.com. For now, that's all from me and the team. Have a great week. Take care and catch you next time.